0: Y'all can talk about all these viruses, and that's good, but you can't forget the main one. It's plaguing us, bro. Down with the colonial virus.
1: Down with the colonial virus.
2: Uhuru, welcome to the People's War Radio Show. I'm Dr. Matsumella Odom. And I'm
0: Mwambi Tongu. Uhuru means freedom in Swahili, and freedom is on our minds 24-7.
2: The COVID-19 pandemic is sweeping prisons across the U.S. Inside those prisons are over a million African people. The mass incarceration of African people began with the passage of the 13th Amendment, which declared that slavery is illegal, except for when a person has been convicted of a crime. Africans were rounded up on bogus charges like vagrancy, convicted, and leased back out to their previous owners. In the
0: past 25 years or so, we've seen the growth of a massive private prison industry. Initiated through the Crime Bill of 1996, authored by Joseph Biden and carried out by Kamala Harris, which put over 100,000 new cops on the street, created new crimes, and fed the situation where African people are more likely to be stopped, face discriminatory prosecutions, and are handed much harsher sentences.
2: Today, campaigns... Are being waged across the U.S. to get African people released from prison, to overturn unjust convictions, free those targeted for their political activities, and out of compassion for aging prisoners, especially vulnerable to the wave of COVID infections sweeping the prisons and jails across the U.S.
0: Today, we will talk with Belinda Parker Brown about one of these cases, that of Reverend Errol Victor Sr. in Louisiana.
2: Belinda Parker-Brown is from Slidell, Louisiana, and founder of Louisiana United International, a civil, constitutional, and human rights organization committed to eliminating unlawful discrimination in that state, with a particular focus on the violent abuse of prisoners at Angola prison. Also from Louisiana United, we have Dr. Zena Crenshaw. Belinda, thank you for coming on The People's War. Can you tell us about Reverend Errol Victor? and his struggle with the state of Louisiana?
1: Absolutely. Um, Thank you so much for giving me this opportunity to be able to tell uh, Reverend Victor's story. The whole world needs to know um, that this man had a tragedy that have literally become a living nightmare. I just would like to go right in and and if it's okay with you all to just tell you why I know for a fact, the only reason why Reverend Victor is in prison is because he was a businessman, a black businessman. Um, He was also um, in the process of developing a dilapidated community that would, um, caused the people there to thrive and bring about jobs and economic development, and he had been doing this type of work for quite some time, and he had become a millionaire um, along with his his wife and his children um, doing um, development work. Um, he had built like eighty some homes and. Um, he was, um, partnered up with 18 of the New Orleans Saints players and they had, um, you know, ventured off to, um, purchase land and build million dollars homes outside of, um, New Orleans, Louisiana, um, which is, um, a little parish that's called St. John the Baptist parish. Um, if you Google that parish, um that parish is now known as the Death Alley because of the fact that they had um some um chemicals in the air out there that would make it, that were making the residents um and the citizens sick. Um so but moving forward with the tale pastor victor story, this this man was brilliant. I mean, he um had a business plan that was probably gonna come um, you know, you know, turn into nothing more, nothing less than billions of dollars. Um, he had a plan to build like a script mall, hotels, um, you know, a Piggly Wiggly, one of the leading, um, market, um uh, grocery stores, um, in Louisiana. Um, you, I just want to say that, you know, Pastor Victor was, um, the the father of six boys, um, in his first marriage, his first wife died of, of cancer. He would have done anything to save his wife. Um, so he married his second wife, um, that had five boys and in that union, um, they had two more boys with gave, which gave him a total of 13 boys. Um, pastor Victor was, um, a, a, a father, a businessman, and a husband, and a pastor. Because Pastor Victor was rooted and grounded in the community, he came to know a lot of people and and um, appreciate the fact that um, his community was um, supportive of the type of work that he was doing. But I want to say that um, what happened... Um, to his seven-year-old son was a tragedy. Um, he was sick. Um, he was born with asthma, and that was one of the problems that they had with this chemicals in the air that a lot of the children suffered from asthma. And so just moving forward, the, the night, the day that Pastor Victor's son um was rushed to the hospital. They arrested pastor Victor at the hospital. Um, him and his wife rushed his son. His son was having breathing problems. Um, couldn't breathe. Um, we would probably call it an asthma attack or something such as that. So when they got to the hospital, the, I really want you to pay attention to this. Um, in the emergency room, there is something called like the waiting process. And they were told that, you know, uh, fill out this form, fill out that form, you know, who's going to be responsible for this because by pastor Victor, um, you know, at this time, you know, he took care of all of their financial, um, you know, affairs and, and that he, just basically said, you know, you all just have to see to my son, you know, get him back there and, um, do what you have to do because I'll be responsible. So, you know, for whatever needs to be, you know, paid or whatever. So the child dies at the hospital and pastor Victor was arrested at the hospital. Now I really want people to pay attention to this because Before there was even a death determination, they arrested him. They did not arrest his wife. She goes back home, you know, frantic and trying to get things in order. Um, But then they come immediately and arrest her as well. Takes all of their kids away from them. And, um put them in child protectors services care. The very next day they um, call for all of pastor Victor's business, um, loans, um, all of his money out of his bank. Um, and he's sitting in jail, him and his wife, both. Okay. And I really want to say that when he was able to bond out of jail to the tomb of millions of dollars. Now, listen to me, Pastor Victor was a very prominent businessman. He had friends, he had connections. He, you know, no way they were going to let him sit in jail. So, they bonded him out and through this process of bonding him out of jail they arrested him and put him back in jail with bonds paid him and his wife so this goes on and on and to you know i want to say um at the same time he was fighting in the civil court he was fighting in the criminal court he was fighting for his kids he was fighting um, for them taking all of his um possessions, um adopting his children off, um it came down to the where the fact where his child was buried and he and him and his wife still don't know to this day where their child is buried. So when when Pastor Victor um goes to court and The judge says to him and the, and the, and the district attorney and, um, whoever else was there that you don't have a case. First of all, there is no, um, murder here. There is no cause of death. Um, so that judge quashed the whole case and threw it out. And told them when you get um a murder case, then you can bring it back. So Pastor Victor and his wife was freed, and several um days or weeks or whatever, I don't know the the exact time frame, but what happened was that the DA, the district attorney, calls a meeting with Pastor Victor. And the meeting was about a 1983 lawsuit that Pastor Victor had filed against the whole parish. He, he sued the state. He sued the, the hospital. He sued the bank. He sued uh, the Child Protective Services. He sued everybody for to the tune of 100 million dollars. He said, somebody is going to be responsible for what you all have done. Um, during the whole court proceeding process is him going back and forth in and out of court, fighting um, to keep his children, to uh, to save his home, all of his possessions. In the middle of that, they... Um, he had a, 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 house that was appraised for 800 over almost a million dollars. They shoved this man house down and made it a concrete slab and adopted all of his children off. So when he told them that somebody is going to be responsible to pay and they, they pull out. The, the the 1983 lawsuit and say you're going to take this away or else you're going to spend the rest of your life in Angola. And Pastor Victor, at that point in time, he said, "Bring it." He said, "Because what you all have done to me is wrong." And he left the state of Louisiana and went to Atlanta with a lot of his business friends and, um, associates there. They, um, put pastor Victor and his wife on the world most wanted. They took around and, 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 and what they did was reallotted the case into another courtroom under another judge. And listen to me when I say re- illegally reallotted the case. Into another division of court, under another judge, and that judge was the judge of his number was she was the judge of the her, the wife. Let me get it right. She, her husband was Pastor Victor's number one competitor. Now, this is where the whole game started, And I want to make this clear because this is the problem. Um, By this time, Pastor Victor had appeared in over, I want to say over a hundred court appearances. He had spent millions of dollars on attorneys and bonds. This man was had been exhausted financially, physically, and almost to the point of emotionally, because his wife had a nervous breakdown and she would have done everything to save her children. Um, to, the, to the point where she even um, concocted that if, if I can just save my children um, with the, with the lawyer, you know, telling her that, you know, you got to kick him under the bus in order for you to, um, be able to, um, you know, save your children. If not all you know, both of you going to go to prison and you will never see your children again. She had a nervous breakdown because of the fact that she would have done anything to save her children at the time. Her babies was like about, you know, um, a year and a half, two years old. And, um, that was, um, a traumatic, um, trauma for her. And I want to say this, that by the time that pastor Victor joined up with, um, Louisiana United international, um, to help him, um, his outcry was, is that, I need an attorney because all of these attorneys were trying to force and badger and threaten Reverend Victor to take a plea. And he said, I refuse to take a plea because I haven't done anything wrong. And he needed an attorney because. He was due to go to trial. And the trial was due to get started in less than weeks. And he did not have an attorney. So we were very successful in being able to obtain an attorney for him that would go and um represent that that actually that filed the motion to enroll on his case. And we appear in court with this attorney, along with my assistant. And we get there and the judge tells the attorney that if you're not ready to go to trial today, then I would advise you not to enroll on this case. The attorney looked at me, looked at Reverend Victor and said that I cannot enroll on your case because this would be, um, Um, this would definitely put his law license at risk of ineffective counsel because at this time he had never met Reverend Victor and he wanted to enroll so that he can get a continuance to have an opportunity to meet with his client. And the judge told him, I advise you not to enroll because you have to go to trial right here, right now, today. So that day the trial started. And I'm moving on to, to, to speed things up because um, again, the only reason why Reverend Victor and his wife was given, um, his wife was given 40 years in prison, and he was given life with a non unanimous jury verdict. Pastor Victor tried his own case, not only for himself. But for his wife as well. And he beat him. When the jury came out, it was nine to three, which would have been a hung jury. The judge stood up, hit the gavel, and said for the jury to go back in there and come, and they better come back out with a verdict. Now, mind me, the whole court was a, it was, you know, if you, some people say kangaroo court, but I'm telling you, this was a lynching in your face, blatant. The worst thing you can ever experience because I was threatened in the courtroom by the judge to put a gag order on me for bringing the media in just to see what they were doing in the courtroom. And the things that they were doing in the courtroom was the worst thing I had ever experienced or seen in my life. When they took my assistant that was not an attorney that had never met Pastor Victor and appointed him to assist Pastor Victor. They also told me that I could not be in the courtroom and I could not bring media in the courtroom and told the media that they were gagged and scared them off
2: how's it been for him behind bars how's he holding up
1: this has been going on for now over 10 years um and it's really bad especially now that we have this deadly coronavirus um I want to say that when, when the district attorney told him that he would be spending the rest of his life in Angola, pastor Victor was had been in act um, just recently was released from Angola because we were successful in changing this racist, unconstitutional Jim Crow law that he was convicted up under, which is the, the 10 two is what we call it, but it's a non-unanimous jury. And, and when, um, Ramos versus Louisiana back in April of 2019, we won that decision that came down. Uh, I mean, November of 2019 and then April of, of, of 2020, the Supreme court ruled that, um, the unanimous jury verdict here in Louisiana it was only two States in the whole country that did it was unconstitutional. So Pastor Victor beat him again, and they had to release him from Angola after spending six years in the Angola prison, which is known as one of the worst prisons in the world, the the most bloodiest prison, if if not the worst prison in the whole world. Um, They had to release Pastor Victor from Angola because the United States Supreme Court, the highest court in the land, vacated his conviction. So that means that he was no longer DOC property and that they can no longer hold him in the state penitentiary. So they remanded him back down to the lower um, um, jail, um, parish uh, or lower courts, which would be the parish jail. And Pastor Victor have been sitting in the parish jails. And this is this right here is I have to say this what they're doing to him because he had been fighting them all the way up to the United States Supreme court. This man was able to stay on direct appeal so that when the Raymond's decision did come down, that he would be automatically, um, you know, have his conviction vacated, thrown out. So, um, this is where we at now today, pastor Victor, have been litigating um back and forth with a lot of just i mean and i'm hoping that dr Zena can speak to this or uh, brian if he made it on but have been um just litigating a lot of the wrong things i mean just all type of um violations where these people have you know done everything that they possibly can to um Railroad this man throughout this corrupt criminal justice system to the tune that you would never ever believe that they are moving him around with this deadly coronavirus from parish to parish.
0: Belinda, I spoke with Brian Kenter earlier, and um, Brian Kenter of the Judicial Accountability Movement JAM, and what he said was that this case illuminates the lengths the judiciary will go to in order to shield themselves from liability from the wrongs, of the judi- from the wrongs that the judiciary commits. And so I wanted to um, give Dr. Crenshaw a chance to just uh, speak to what, what Brian was saying.
3: Thank you so much for, for having me on the program. And yes, I, I, um, Mr. Kenter, as well as Ms. Belinda, um, our close colleagues of mine, in fact, fellow board members on the National Strategy and Management Board. And um, Mr. Um, Kenter is right right on target. In fact, that's not just a personal assessment. Um, at the beginning of this, of this century, um, there were a lot of average citizens who were experiencing what seemed to be uh, an orchestrated abuse of the legal system you You had your opponent, uh, the attorney against you in a case. and it seemed like somehow they that that influential attorney, or law firm it, it, the 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 presiding judge um and your adversary in court seemed to like have an agreement that you were not going to be provided a fair and impartial resolution of whatever the case was before you, whether it was a criminal case or a family court matter. And, um, so the internet allowed all of, all of us who were having a similar experience to become aware of each other. Um, and so there were people, uh, we were, we were, uh, taking to take into the streets and, and, and going to legislators and members of Congress and, and trying to get this situation investigated. We were also continuing to try to, um, you know, press our case through the routine, co- you know, legal proceedings through court action. And t- literally 10, 20 years collectively passed and, and there was really no relief. Um, and it was just like we were just chasing our tails. But the one benefit that came out of that is by January of 2018 um, uh, uh, the campaign called opt-in USA was able to pull together uh, the experiences of, of all all of these people um, where it seemed like the the, the the judge was you know assisting their opponent, to uh, abuse the legal system, it, it was as if the legal system was weaponized against us, and and no matter no matter how obvious the misconduct, you, you weren't getting any any relief. So at this point, there had been historical analysis by um, you know various respected co- scholars. There had been social science research conducted, um, and we were able to convince the United Nations Human Rights Council that when your allegation is that um, essentially, that the legal system has been uh, weaponized against you. That 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 there was an organized, a uh, concerted, a deliberate abuse of the legal system, and it's f- facilitated by the presiding judge. And your rights were being deliberately violated, and there was no relief being provided. That if when that's your allegation in the United States, the UN Human Rights Council agreed that there is no effective avenue of redress. That that that. The domestic that our political and legal systems provide. So, um, you know, Mr. Mr. Kenter was absolutely right because we've lived it. You know, advocates like uh, LUI, Ms. Melinda, um, the JAM, the Judicial Accountability Movement, the organization I co founded, which we call the Law Project, uh, we were able to personally attest that. You know, no matter who was representing you, no matter how sophisticated your, cl- your claims, there was no relief to be had. And um, m- what we came to, to realize is that it just seemed to be no limits that the courts, that the judges wouldn't go to try to um, not have any accountability for this abusive process. You know,
1: I, I just want to say that, you know, what what I have witnessed in Pastor Victor's case is just, you know, outrageous. It's, um, you know, um, it, it's a state of emergency um, for what Dr. Z is talking about. You know, we can no longer stand idly by and just uh, witness these type of atrocities happening in our um, justice system where there is um, just absolutely... Um, tyranny that's been put up on um, people like Pastor Victor and his family and his children are still trapped in this nightmare, you know, um, you know, you know, to take his tragedy and, um, and and just victimize him over and over again. This man is literally fighting for his life right now. As I speak, um, they have taken him from one prison to the next. The one that he's at now um, he said that the, um, they won't give them clothes. Um, you know, they, they, um, they won't give them soap. You know, they can barely take showers. Um, they wrapped around and blankets is cold in there. Uh, people are sick. You know, um, the food is slop. Okay. Um, he said that the portions of the food is, is not even fit to give to a, a child or a baby. Um. You know, so all of this is just tyranny, is torture, you know, to uh, Reverend Victor because he have beat them. He have beat them over and over again. The first case was was quashed and thrown out. Um, the second time when Ramos versus Louisiana, you know, um, woke up a sleeping giant here in the state of Louisiana and in the Louisiana Constitution that um, the United States Supreme Court The highest court in the land um, declared that that law, that constitution, that they schemed up to put people in prison, to snatch people off the street like Reverend Victor. Just take this man and just throw him around and and, and paint him to be a monster, you know, so that they can um, because they got it wrong. They got it wrong. And they're not going to raise their hand and say they got it right.
3: Ms. Melinda, if I could um, emphasize, and I'm certainly not any, uh, an expert, I've never practiced law in the state of Louisiana, but I want to emphasize how they even got to this uh, second verdict that was overturned by the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, and you made the point, but I just want to uh, really you know, put a, even more spotlight on the fact that when the first judge made the determination and quashed the indictment against Reverend Victor and said, you know, you know, this, th- where's the crime? You know, you, you have a child that apparently died of natural causes from asthma. So how is there a crime? And, and, and she quashed the case and said, you know, come back to me when you have a crime. What, 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 what everyone needs to, to realize is, is, is that at that point, the prosecutor's office had only two options. They could dismiss, they could dismiss the case um, or they had to appeal that ruling, that ruling of the judge. Now, they had the option to um, just come back and refile in front of that judge or they could have uh, appealed that judge's decision. But what they did instead was they just took the case to another judge. Mm. So that that was, that. you know, that is just... Totally illegal, and I'm hoping that's clear. Even though we're not, you know, lawyers, and we're not, you know, making a, a, a formal legal analysis of it, they they just didn't have the option to just take the case to another judge. Which, as Ms. Melinda indicates, was the wife of uh, Reverend Victor's um, chief business um, competitor. Mm. So we want to start talking in terms of Pastor Victor being properly characterized at this point as a political prisoner. And uh Ms. Belinda I I can elaborate on that if you okay. okay. So you know there's two aspects of this political prisoner um and, and, and the in our characterization of uh, Reverend Victor as a, a political prisoner. Um the first of all is a new concept that we're liking the, um the community of criminal justice reform activists and advocates for u s political prisoners to to uh, we're, this is an idea that luI is putting on the table and we're hoping it be, will be embraced by uh, the community of people who who um, advocate for for u.s political prisoners one is the 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 idea that there are black Business people—they're um, either visionaries, and they have you know these you know um, groundbreaking business concepts, or products or services, and perhaps they, they, their business hasn't become operational. Or you have these black business visionaries who who have become moguls, uh, which is pretty much what Reverend Victor was. He he was very much in the in the in the course of Building up his uh, community em- empire, so we have this happen. And I've seen it happen more than once that these uh, particular black people get targeted and find themselves in- uh prosecuted under highly questionable um, criminal charges, and um, and 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 then convicted, wrongfully convicted, and incarcerated. Now, what happens is they have been taking taken out of the economic development equation in this country. So what we're proposing is, um, you know, not only political prisoners being um, Blacks who have opposed uh, the government that's responsible for imprisoning them, or criticized the government that's responsible for criti- uh, for imprisoning them, but also Black people who are uh, through criminal prosecutions get taken out of the economic development equation in this country. And so we want to put out there the prospect of that also being a a political prisoner and Reverend Victor fitting that scenario. And then, of course, the more um, typical uh, scenario is when you have a district attorney that's, uh, you know, requiring that Reverend Victor uh, dismissed a a, a 1983 lawsuit, a challenge of the government conduct against him um, under threat of life imprisonment. So uh, that is a situation where your your First Amendment activities, uh, in most cases, is your political speech that gets you targeted. Um, But in in Reverend um, Victor's case, it's political speech in the form of a, a lawsuit that got him targeted. And 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 led to the to this um you know the nightmare that, that Miss Melinda has described so far. So we want to put out there and we want this year to start characterizing Reverend Victor. Well, we've done it before, um, but we we're gonna really start pressing at this point that this is a political prisoner. Reverend Victor.
2: Well, yeah, thank you for that. Because we know that the colonial oppression that African people face. Uh, within the U.S., but also all around the world has to do with the either the exploitation, the surplusing, or the, uh, yeah, the theft of our value in multiple different ways. So, um, you know, whether that value is as uh, workers, that value is as uh, economic producers, and that really is the the, the the level of struggle that I think you are outlining in terms of saying, hey, Uh, Africans are being politically targeted uh, for a variety of different reasons. So thanks for that. You are listening to the People's War Radio Show, produced by WBPU, Black Power 96.3 FM in St. Petersburg, Florida. Our guest today is Belinda Parker-Brown and Dr. Zena Crenshaw. Belinda, Reverend Victor spent some years in Angola prison, which is notorious. Can you tell us about Angola prison in Louisiana?
1: Absolutely. Um, you know, Angola, like I said, it's is a mockery. Um, it, it was known as the worst, uh, most bloodiest prison in the whole world. And, um, Louisiana became the, the, um, the, the, the state that was, um, had more people incarcerated than anywhere else in the world. Um, and, you know, if, if you know your history here in Louisiana, um, right down here in, in New Orleans on the um, on the um, Gulf of Mexico, where the bodges, you know, the slaves would come in and the blocks there, they would, is the place where they would um, sell the slaves from. And when the slaves would cry out, they would say that, you know, I want to go home. So um, home for them was angola um africa you know and um so the the the, it became like a joke okay you gonna go home all right we gonna you know uh put you in angola and um angola is it sits on about i want to say um thousands of acres you know thousands of acres And when you drive up out there, you got to go in like about, you know, um, about 10 miles just to get into the gate. Okay. And when you, the first thing you see is black cows and then swamp, you know, full of alligators and crocodiles or whatever, and um, pausing the snakes. And, you know, Angola is, is is almost like a, it's like a, a, a scary, like a a nightmare when you say that name, because I remember as a little girl growing up, my grandmother would say, you know, if y'all don't behave, you're going to wind up in Angola. So it became like a, just a known thing. Um, I want to say this, that Pastor Victor, Victor is a brilliant man. This man, you know, he conquered Angola and um, he was in a dome with a hundred men to a dome and what he did was converted all of those young men and, um, you know, to, um, converted their faith and, um, to believe in God and also started a choir, a men's choir that he earned a lot of respect for those young men there and throughout the prison. So they kind of like put him up, put him over the garden because all he eat is vegetables and he put, they put him over the garden and he was able to train these young men how to grow all types of fruits and vegetables out there in Angola. So he was a very, um, success in Angola, um, and made it through all of his suffering, um, and was just recently released. And when they released him from Angola, the warden there, you know, gave him civilian clothes. They gave him an ID. They gave him the, um, it's a program that's called the 72 program. It's like a transitional program where you would, um, you know, qualify to get in this program and they would have jobs and everything for you once you release from prison, you know, resources and whatnot. And um, they snatched past the Victor up and put him in the back of the score, instead of you know him thinking that he was getting ready to be released as a civilian, um, they they put him into this hellhole, godforsaken hellhole jail called Saint John the Baptist Parish, which um, is the um, the parish that he was in the middle of developing, and um, I guess accumulated so much resentment from the the established or the powers that be there. That they wanted him to spend the rest of his life in Angola. Um, so you know, um, it's really sad. This is this is a tragedy for him, and um, it it is it renders you know people powerless. You know, I can sense that you know his energy. He said that um, just recently had all of the um, in this parish jail had all of the symptoms of the COVID nineteen. You know, he was. Um, basically describing that he wasn't able to hold any food down, that he was, um, you know, cold, he couldn't get warm, um, that he was having um, feverish and whatnot. And um, we filed, um, along with um, his attorney, um, um, filed a, um, you know, um, a habeas, and, you know, with some help and assistance that I wanted to, to, to get him out of that, that, that condition because I know for a fact that pastor Victor is worth more to them dead than alive. And, uh, when, when we did that, found that habeas, and, and, and my capacity in the name of, um, you know, my own personal name to say that you don't have a right to hold this man, you know, um, And that, you know, with this deadly coronavirus, you know, he's entitled to a bail, you know, at least let us bail him out. And um, what they did when they were served, they um, were served on the, I I filed the habeas on the December 17th. They were served on the 21st and believe it or not, they snatched him up before they can get an answer from the judge to show cause they snatched him up out of that prison and took him all the way out of the state to mississippi and then brought him back into the state and put him in a parish four or five i mean about five or six hours away from where he's supposed to be and that's where he's at now suffering inside of this hell hole with the deadly coronavirus and in this little parish that they live in, it's probably the population is no more than about a little over 3000 people. And we have already done the research that in that parish, they got over 1900 people infected with the coronavirus. So we're fighting for pastor Victor and his wife that is um, suffering in the jail that she's in as well. And it's just um, to the point that this is a state of emergency. Thank you for that, Belinda.
0: It sounds like he's experiencing the same thing in several different prisons. So that brings me to another question. Dr. Crenshaw, is this situation in Angola and the case for Reverend Victor Unique, or is it common to see what's happening to African people around the country?
3: Well, Relatively speaking, when, when, I mean, there's, there's, there's abuse of um, the legal system and it's widespread. You know, that's one of the questions that the Human Rights Council has asked. Um, and it's why they didn't get formally involved because they want some sense of, of quantity. Uh, who, who, how many people are being impacted by this, uh, this type of uh, concerted abusive process, weaponization of the legal system? Um, we, we have estimates that suggest that there are literally 10 to 10, 20 or so mi- million uh, people who are directly impacted when you take into consideration uh, the litigants and their nuclear family.
1: Here in Louisiana, we call it the home-cooked meal. And the reason why we call it the home cooked meal is because of the extreme that the extreme that these people would go to just to get a conviction. You know, we were successful in getting a district attorney indicted here in the parish that I live in because he um nicknamed this parish um Saint Salaminy, you know, because it was Saint Tammany. And he would um put people in prison on concocted, fabricated, um, just fraudulent information because he wanted to preserve his 99.9 conviction rate. And and how they did that was by badgering and threatening people to take a plea. They was like, if you don't take this plea, we're going to put you in front of an all-white jury and we're going to give you life life for snatching a purse life for smoking a joint you know life for you know um whatever it you know especially when we got the um that um that was mentioned in the beginning that this multi-deal you know all they needed was was three uh no uh, two or three misdemeanors i'm not sure to make them a felony join them together and make them a felony and if you had Uh, one or two, uh, two or three felonies, then they can multi-bill you and give you life in prison because now you're a career criminal.
2: Uh Oh, thanks for that, Sister Belinda, because this really sounds like colonialism. It sounds like the relationship African people uh, have had to the U.S. economy uh, and that that relationship has remained unchanged since our capture from Africa. So uh you know thank you thank you for that. Uh I'm really appreciate uh the point that you're making about Louisiana specifically because we know that you know Louisiana is the northern tip of the exact same uh slave empire that enslaved Africans in Haiti. So um what you're calling for uh is organized resistance. You are listening to the People's War Radio Show, produced by WBPU, Black Power 96.3 FM in St. Petersburg, Florida. Our guest today is Belinda Parker-Brown and Dr. Zena Crenshaw. Belinda, can you tell us a little bit more about your organization, how you have been able to be a catalyst uh, to overturn the disparities that uh, uh, that have plagued African people getting trapped behind these prison bars?
1: Yes, um, you know, you said it earlier, is that um, it's so important for us to be able to organize and mobilize and expose this type of injustice that have been taking place in our courts, um, throughout our community. Um, It's so important right now for people to understand that, you know, we have to unite, we have to come together. We have to be able to um, be a force to be reckoned with when it comes to this type of injustice. One of the things that, you know, LUI really want people to know that we take this personal. We do not want people to feel as though that they're alone. When I have a person come to me and tell me, you know, I paid a lawyer, you know, $50,000, $60,000, and he forced and threatened me and badgered me to take a plea, it's something seriously wrong with that. And when I have a lawyer that I know that, you know, he's he's, um, in cahoots with the prosecutor and the judge and the sheriff and the police officer, I don't stand a chance. And what we're saying that we have to expose that. And that's what Louisiana United International been doing. And I also wanna say that we need the citizens of Louisiana and all of America and the international human rights community to join LUI in asking how our state treatment of Reverend Victor could pass for justice in a civilized society. This is wrong. This is wrong. Prison for profit is wrong. Putting people in prison and making slaves out of them is wrong. Working people for four cents a day and making people billionaires is wrong. And we have to expose it. Here in Louisiana, we're in a state of emergency. This is serious for all of our listeners out there. We're not making this up. What we really need right now... Is is that all of America, to the the whole world, people, to to support this effort, you know, to help us, and join up with us, you know, we need all of the um the 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 international human rights um community, you know, to join with LUI, you know, in asking how our state. Um, Louisiana can help, you know, how the people here in Louisiana can help support Reverend Victor. You know, go to our website at, you know, like us on Facebook, Louisiana United International. Our website is www.launitedi.org and you can also email us at info Info at launitedi.org. We need to hear from people. We need to know that you're out there and you're listening and you're concerned about what Dr. Zena mentioned earlier is that we have the door, we have the gateway to fighting these type of atrocities that not just only Pastor Victor and his wife, but many, many others here in the state of you, of of uh, here in the United States of America where they have blatantly disregarded us when we have these type of situations happening in our criminal justice system thank you uh,
0: thank you thank you really appreciate that
3: we're reaching out to advocates and and, and concerned citizens across the country because we want to uh, we already have in place a working group that's addressing uh, the COVID-19, the impact of COVID-19 on uh, Louisiana's incarcerated population. And a, and, and a sub uh, topic of our working group is Reverend Victor's case.
2: You are listening to the People's War Radio Show, produced by WBPU, Black Power 96.3 FM in St. Petersburg, Florida. Our guests today were Belinda Parker-Brown, and Dr. Zena Crenshaw.
0: WBPU is a project of the African People's Education and Defense Fund, a nonprofit organization whose mission is to defend the human and civil rights of the African community and address the grave disparities faced by African people in education, healthcare, and economic development. For more information on the African People's Education and Defense Fund, visit apedf.org.
2: Episodes of the People's War radio show are available on the Black Power Talks podcast on wubp.podbean.com. For updates and resources
0: to fight the coronavirus or to volunteer with Project Black Onk, visit developmentforafrica.org.
2: We'd like to thank our guests, Belinda Parker-Brown and Dr. Zena Crenshaw, for joining us today. We'd also like to thank you, our listeners, for tuning in. Mass incarceration,
1: that's colonial
0: virus Deportation, that's colonial
3: virus The need for constant inebriation, y'all, that's colonial virus Attacks on black women, that's
0: colonial virus Attacks on black men, that's colonial virus Attacks on black children, that's colonial virus no more of